He says, you have a speck. I have a plank. My concern is the plank in my own eye. The concern that I have about other people's stuff is like 1% of the concern that I am intended to have about my own stuff. What is your bias? What have you come to see because of your leaning? It's not punitive. It's informative. The Become Good Soil podcast and the overall mission of Become Good Soil is the deep work of apprenticeship. It's to reach the many to find the few who are all in, who are saying, I want to live the supernatural life. I want to live in a way where God has to show up or it doesn't work. I want to become the kind of person that has nothing to fear, nothing to hide, and nothing to prove. And it's something captured in the life of Paul where he says at the end of his life, I've learned a secret, a secret that has left me with profound happiness that's not dependent on what I have and don't have and what I do and don't do. I have found a recovery of union. I have found a oneness of being with this heroic trinity. I've become the kind of person that wherever I am and whatever I have, I can make it through in the one who makes me who I am. Those are Paul's words in Philippians, paraphrased from Eugene Peterson's translation of the message. And so that's what we're chasing after. We're going deep and I'm visiting a category that I first introduced after really chewing on it, meditating on it, for over six months, I introduced this with the Become Good Soil alumni community, over 500 strong, and then the Become Good Soil intensive applicants from our intensive that was postponed uh, due to COVID. We have 287 men who've applied for 87 spots. And so together, that fellowship of the like-hearted dove into this. So I wanted to take a pass and bring some of those thoughts to you through this podcast. So before we go anywhere else, you're coming probably full speed. Whatever your world is, tending to things, caring for things, intervening for things, I want this to be a reprieve from some of the busy, from some of the hurry. And I want to invite you even now just to pause, just to pause, recover your breath, breathe in, breathe out. For Samuel, the scripture says that the spirit of God filled David like a rushing wind. It filled him, it infused him with vitality that never left him for the rest of his days. So friends, we invite the Spirit of God to infuse you now with vitality, infuse you with strength, with sustenance, with rivers of life, and with profound care, profound confidence. You are loved. God is authoring this recovery of a path and process of masculine initiation. So come Jesus in all your power, come Holy Spirit in your intimate counsel and your navigating 
us through our own story. And come, Father, in your abundant generosity and your profound strength, kindness, and care. Amen. As I dove into this topic with the alumni, I took a huge risk to begin with a poll on two simple questions with one answer or another, simply two choices on two questions. And every man had to answer the question, where do you lean? What do you lean towards? The first question was, as it relates to navigating our COVID cultural moment, I generally choose either mask or no mask. So that was the first question. And then the second question is, in this last presidential election for the United States, I generally supported Biden or Trump. And so every man needed to come up with their answers for those two questions. And even you in this moment can just pause. Don't think about it too much. No, there's not a third option, though many of you probably wish there was. But where do you land? Mask or no mask? Biden or Trump? Sit with that idea for a moment. Friends, was fascinating is on the poll, there was um, a great disparity. There was uh, on the mask question, 75% went one way, 25% went another. On the Biden-Trump question, 60% went one way, 40% went another. Now here's what's important. The percentages, it's not of concern in this conversation of which one went which way. In other words, I'm actually not concerned whether it was mask or no mask or whether it was Biden or Trump. What I'm concerned about is the difference. Okay, sit with me for a moment. So you have a group of like-hearted men who are consenting to being led by God through a path of initiation. If you line up everyone in the world and could see their worldviews, this fellowship of men to a near 99 percentile would have a like-kind view of reality in, in the centermost theological um, ideology, right? The belief in a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, belief that Jesus is the Son of God. He was an actual person that was crucified at human hands and three days later was resurrected and his power unleashes a force of restoration to heal and restore all things as they were meant to be. Those simple ideas alone put you in like a 1%. And so you have this group of men that believe these same things and they would put a stamp on, we believe the same things. And yet you have the answer to a poll that actually has pretty enormous consequences when it comes to men being entrusted with power and they have such different answers. And what I wanna excavate a bit with you is what's behind that? Not the belief structure, not the theology, but the lens through which that belief structure and theology is presented and operationalized in our everyday life. Proverbs says, there's a way that seems right to a man and in the end leads to death. Friends, it could also be said that there's a way that seems wrong to a man, and in the end, it leads to life. And so today, I want to dive into this big idea in this uh, series that I've been taking the alumni through, guiding them through the deep questions of masculine initiation. We've come to a central question 
that very few kings ever give serious, sober, loving attention to over time. And the question is, what is my bias? What is my bias? The most simple definition of bias is a leaning in favor or against a person or thing compared to another. It's a leaning, a bend in favor or against a person or thing compared to another. And friends, these are so close to us. It's hard to even name. It's, it's, it's literally impossible to excavate our own bias apart from God. But they are shaping much of how we interact, much of how we lead, much of how we listen, and much of how we love. Bias is very real, and it shapes, in the end, everything in which we see. And so this summer, I spent uh, a couple weeks really asking God to show me what are examples of some of my bias that are objective? What are some of the bias that shape the way I see? And friends, these are just simply factual statements, objective realities of things about who I am or what I've encountered that I know are shaping me personally more than I can even imagine. And the first is simply this, I am a man. Now we may think that's obvious or even overstated, but here's the reality. Everything I experience, I experience as a man and not as a woman. And that has profound implications in my seeing. I'm white. I was born to Polish Jews and Irish Catholic immigrants. And when I was a kid, I loved golf. And so my dad was a self-made man that worked his way up to a private practice in surgery. And he wanted to join the local country club so that I could get kind of the best opportunity to thrive as a golfer. But because my dad is a Jew, they shut us off and they blackballed us and we were never able to join the country club. I was arrested twice, once when I was eight and once when I was 16. And as I reflect, in neither of those incidents did I ever really suffer any practical consequences on a human level. Again, these are factual things in my experience that have shaped me profoundly. I was mugged by two African-American men at gunpoint at a movie theater in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania in junior year of high school. I was extremely overweight as a young boy. I am American. I was born in the suburbs of Pittsburgh, but I was saved. I was initiated through wild places in the West. And I just wanna pause because there's all sorts of things that cause bias in me, but I'm naming those as examples of factual things that either I am or I experience that for better and worse shape how I see and how I interpret reality. Friends, because of these biases and others, I do not see clearly. I see what I want to see. I see what I choose to see. Another way of saying it is I believe, therefore I see. And simply put, I do not see as God sees. And friends, that's sober because we've been entrusted to this partnership with God. 
to rule and reign and exercise his intentions over all of creation to partner, to see that everything that he meant for good, that has been corrupted, that has been damaged, lost or stolen or surrendered, that all of it would be restored and made new. But I do not see as God sees. And so that's why it's with profound humility that we need to risk the, one of the greatest invitations of masculine initiation that we'll ever receive. And that's to be guided by a father, guided by more mature, wiser men than us to become aware of the depth and breadth of the particular biases that have shaped us and are shaping every moment of our lives. As we'll learn over time, we can be biased in our false self and we can be biased in our true self. And not all bias is a bad thing, but there's a path and process to bring all our bias under Christ, to crucify and put to death that which does not serve him and doesn't align with the truth and those things that are good and beautiful. And those that do to consecrate them to the care and connection of God in order that they might be in the service of love to shepherd that unique assignment we have on the earth. And so I want to start with a story of a water filter. This is our kitchen, our home. We got one of those newfangled refrigerators a couple years back that has not just a water dispenser, but a water filter, right? The old water dispensers, you could dispense water with or without a filter. They were mechanical and not digital or electrical, and you could replace the filter if you wanted. But the new ones require a filter, and our filter needed replaced because the fridge told us. Now, here is the reaction. I'm thinking, there's no way I'm replacing that. I'm keeping the old one. And my wife's thinking, we need a new water filter. Now pause with me. I want to go behind the scenes. If you could look at my wife, Sherry, and look at me and kind of, it was transparency inside our soul and view the biases that we are using to filter this situation that we need to replace our filter. So here's my bias as I excavated this. I spend a lot of time in the backcountry. I've actually used water filters to a great degree. I've been in situations where water filters have been life-saving. You know, they are designed to filter out microorganisms, bacteria, and things that you can get very ill from or even die. And so I've done research on water filters and I know what they are capable of doing. Secondly, I have a bend towards thinking of how the company, GE on, in this instance, has converted a refrigerator into an income generating asset and how this company that's capitalism up and to the right, more and more faster and faster, quarterly earnings, TPS reports, they are looking at me to maximize their profits. I have a suspicion of being sold to and I'm always looking for the angle of the narrow road. Where are the few and how do they find life? So those are some of my biases. I'm not saying they're good or bad. I'm saying those are how I operate internally, subconsciously. My wife, very different. The first value she has is healthy, clean, and organic. She's thinking about loving the people entrusted to her care, and she wants to give them the healthiest water possible. 
Now, my wife generally trusts people and she generally trusts things. She was shaped and formed in a culture where people were generally considered trustworthy. And she enjoys following the rules. Generally speaking, she's not looking to break the rules. And so here you have a need, a decision. Do we replace the water filter? And you have very different sets of bias that are in conflict. So in our specific situation, I normally take care of those sort of things in the home. And so it's my responsibility. So I did what every man would do with my set of various bias and I hit reset. I told the fridge, here's your new filter and problem solved. My wife is happy because the water feels clean and organic. I feel happy because I didn't get sold to. Because the other caveat that I want to add is I did some very minor looking into what does a water filter on a refrigerator do? And what I found is it does nothing to remove microorganisms, bacteria, E. coli, salmonella, the, the type of things that I would want to protect my family from. And at the end of the day, the specific filter that I put in my specific fridge at best I could find was it's guaranteed to use carbon to, to reduce taste in the water and make the, the, the taste better. And I think to myself, we have awesome water in Colorado. It's snow melt. It comes from the high country. We have clean water. It tastes awesome. We don't need that. And so that was the assumption I came to. So pause on that. That's introduction. We'll get back to part two of that story towards the close. But in light of that, I want to go into another story because Jesus is so brilliant in shepherding the soul of man as men and women into this process of gaining visibility into the impossible, of understanding our bias, becoming a student of it, and bringing it under the care of Christ. He does it in the story of Matthew 7, the plank and the speck, as it's translated in the NIV. He says it this way, it's in relation to people interacting. He calls it a brother, but this could be a spouse, this could be with children, where he says, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye. How can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck in your brother's eye. In the Passion Translation, I love that this this um, teaching from Christ begins with this statement. He says, we must refuse to be a critic full of bias towards others. So what I love about all the translations is there's a lot of fluidity of what Jesus meant by the speck and the plank. There are different things that he likely could have been talking about. It's a form of sin. It's a form of brokenness. It's, it's sort of a boomerang effect though. What, kind of however we measure others, that will be measured to us. There's, there's just a lot of room to play and, and utilize our sort of sanctified imagination to excavate this passage. But there are other things in the passage that are very clear. What Jesus makes very clear in this matter is that as it relates to other people, I have a plank and they have a speck. He literally uses exaggeration to communicate this idea of the concern that I have about other people's stuff, 
is like 1% of the concern that I am intended to have about my own stuff. He says, you have a speck, I have a plank, my concern is the plank in my own eye. He's very clear on the matter that my responsibility is to work to remove the plank in my own eye. That if there's anything I'm going to do in this situation, and we use the statement, keep my side of the street clean. I remember backpacking through Italy and the old ladies would come out to the market. They would literally take a handmade broom and sweep their side of what appeared to be a public street. And the idea is if everyone takes responsibility for their side of the street, then we have clean streets and low taxes. And so I need to remove the plank out of my own eye. As the passage goes on, we see that is in order that I can see clearly. Friends, again, it takes tremendous humility to just confess, I don't know what I don't know. And whatever I see, I don't yet see clearly. And it's only from that place that then I can begin to ask the question, and now how? By seeing clearly and operating in love, having dealt with my own stuff, how can I help my brother, my wife, my family with their speck? Friends, choosing to be a student of our own plank, to remove the plank in our eye, to work with God, to participate with full healing, restoration, maturity, consecrating our bias. That is the path to becoming the kind of king that God can confidently entrust the care of his kingdom. David Brooks wrote a beautiful book called The Second Mountain, and we've talked about his book, uh, Road to Character, where I unpack some of his themes with the idea of the big me. And in The Second Mountain, he has this beautiful quote where he says, seeing well is not natural. It is an act of humility. Seeing well means getting your own self, your needs and wishes out of the way so that you can see the things you're looking at as itself and not just as a mirror of your own interests. Seeing well is a skill you learn from others who see reality clearly. John Ruskin once wrote, the greatest thing a human soul ever does in this world is to see something and tell what it saw in a plain way. Friends, bias is real. It's the lens through which we are seeing and it's shaping us more than we know. And so in this next section, I wanna kinda step up to 15,000 feet, 30,000 feet. I wanna do a flyover. I don't want you to get too in the weeds with any of these ideas because it's meant to simply be a cursory overview to demonstrate different kind of bias that is operating subconsciously in us every day of our life. And you can unpack these more deeply. A lot of these are from secondary sources I can give you, but ultimately I just want you to have an overview. And like the first is gender bias, right? Like I said at the beginning, everything you do, you do as a man or as a woman. It would be fascinating just to take that for a day and try that on. You drive like a man, you shop, like a man, you answer email like a man, you work like a man, you problem solve like a man, you relate like a man, and that matters. That shapes your seeing. A second bias is a moral ecology bias. Every one of us has a moral ecology, right? Big words to get to this simple idea that we all need meaning. 
at the end of the day, what we live for is meaning. The stories of Holocaust survivors, fundamentally, it comes down to dignity that flows out of meaning based in a moral ecology. A moral ecology is a philosophy of life. Brooks said it's a set of criteria that determines simply what's valuable and how something is more valuable than something else. Different places and different times in history come out with different systems of values to find meaning. And so here's some simple examples. The Greek tradition, their moral ecology is built on honor and glory. Like this summer, I just read Gates of Fire. It's a tremendous warrior ethos book that features the story of the Spartans and the great 300 that took a stand. And it's all about honor and glory. The Jewish culture, the Hebraic tradition is totally different, emphasizing obedience to the law and strictness of conscience. And then you have the Christian tradition where Brooks would say it's emphasizing humility, surrender, and grace. We have the enlightenment tradition. It's based on reason, individual liberty, personal freedom, and it goes on and on. There's Gnosticism, Buddhism, Confucianism, feminism, destructionism, on and on it goes. Every person throughout human history and every subculture is born into a moral ecology. Another bias that shapes all of us is this fascinating idea called default to truth. Malcolm Gladwell wrote a brilliant book that I dove into over this past year, Talking to Strangers. It's a fascinating audio book because he gets real life voices, audio reenactments. But what he unpacks is many bias in the book, but fundamentally this core bias of default to truth. And it's this idea that most of us have an operating assumption that people we are dealing with are honest. We want to believe this. And at times, it's proven to be a devastating bias. Now, spoiler alert on the book, where Malcolm Gladwell lands is it's actually good to have default to truth bias. It makes civilization work well. It creates intimate, trustworthy community. But the important thing is sometimes that bias can be devastating. In Becoming a King, I talked about Bernie Madoff and the largest Ponzi scheme in financial history. I talked about the Penn State most winning coach in the history of college football, Joe Paterno, who him, together with Jerry Sandusky, his assistant coach, um, got all caught up in a scandal of sexual abuse. Jerry Sandusky was the offender, not Joe Paterno, but it took them both out. Story after story, again and again, it was found out that the CIA for decades during Fidel Castro's reign and the Cuban Missile Crisis, most of the CIA operatives for the United States of America were double agents also getting paid by Cuba. Not some of them, not a few of them, most of them. The question that Malcolm asks is how does this happen? How does it happen that Michael McQueary, a Penn State quarterback turned assistant coach, comes into a locker room and sees with his own eyes Jerry Sandusky having anal sex with a 10-year-old boy? He witnesses it in 2001. He's crushed by it. He tells his mom. He tells the head coach, Joe Paterno, within a day. This is 2001. And it's not until 2011 
that Sandusky's arrested. And in that time, there's 26 more victims over hundreds of incidences. How does this happen? It happens because there is a human necessity to default to truth, to believe that the people we're dealing with are honest with us. And it causes us to lean towards not seeing clearly. I want to name some other bias that shape us. There's confirmation bias. This is the tendency to interpret new evidence as a confirmation of existing beliefs and theories. You've heard the statement, you give a boy a hammer, the whole world's a nail. It's a perfect example of this. Or something like, I have a headache, so I prayed against it thinking that it was spiritual warfare and it goes away. And so I have a headache now again, and I assume it must be warfare. Now it may be warfare. It may not be. I may need prayer. I may need Advil. I may need hydration. But confirmation bias teaches us that we will have a set of beliefs and things that happen to us, we don't take as new criteria, but we actually use them to substantiate our existing beliefs. So there's all sorts of cognitive bias. One's called the anchoring effect. So this is the tendency for an early bit of information to affect our view of all the information that comes out after it. So a great example for me was elk hunting. I didn't grow up hunting and it was a big learning curve. And I read books and I trained and I spent time in the field. But at the end of the day, in my first five years, I had very few encounters with actual elk on public land doing actual elk things. And so I was very passionate to learn, but I had a very small data set. And so I came to actual wrong conclusions about elk activity because I use my early encounters as a sort of anchoring effect to make speculation that actually over 15, 20 years of being an elk hunter, I learned the hard way that that was actually not consistently objectively true about the nature of elk behavior and activity. That's the anchoring effect. Then there's choice supportive bias. Okay, this is great. When somebody gets a new car, or a new house. What's mostly operating is choice supportive bias. And I'm guilty of this too. So just go back to the last time you got a new car, the last time you got a new house, and somebody asked you how you like it. Did you go through all the things you didn't like about it, all the things you were unhappy with, or for the most part, did you talk about the things you loved, the things you were grateful for, the things that you were stoked about? That's what choice supportive bias is, the tendency to give positive qualities to an option we've chosen just because we've chosen it. I have listened to myself and others describe a car or a home that wasn't good for them or for me, but to describe it with so much conviction and confidence that it was God's best because I had already made the choice and it couldn't easily be undone. Another bias, group think bias. Okay, I know it's a lot, you guys, but this is just an overview. I don't want to get in the weeds. I just want to give you perspective of the sort of things that operate in how we see. Groupthink bias is the tendency to believe things because other people do. Here's what's crazy about this is brain studies have shown that when we hold opinions different than other people in a group, our brains actually produce an error signal and they warn us that we're probably wrong. 
Just think about that. Your brain actually releases a chemical that gives the feeling you are probably wrong. And the converse is true. When you switch in a group from a dissenting opinion to the opinion that the majority of people hold, the brain actually can increase chemical production to provide feelings that feel like safety and happiness. Okay, you think about that bias. I feel wrong when I disagree and I feel safe and happy when I agree. And so now I put myself in a difficult situation on parenting, a difficult situation in hearing from God and there's profound bias. Here's another one that's huge. It's called the halo effect bias. We were in an informal avalanche training this past year and my friend was walking me through how essential this is when you're in a situation like avalanche awareness where there are so many factors and ultimately they're very subjective decisions, a lot on intuition and hunch that can be life or death. What the halo effect is is simply this, less experienced group members tend to believe that the expert within the group has all the answers and all the skill. So their decision-making ability and their opinions and observations are really rendered useless or, or not of much consequence. But in contrast, a true expert knows that they do not have all the answers and they're willing to reach out to others for help. Just think about how many times you've done that. You're in a situation where there are experts and you're not an expert and so you automatically reduce your opinion, your intuition, your thoughts on it to say, well, I'm not going to speak up because that guy, that girl, she knows what she's doing. It's called a halo effect and it can get people killed. Friends, the list goes on and on and on. This is just beginning, scratching the surface. And some of these ideas are pulled from David Brooks, Second Mountain. Some of them are pulled from Avalanche Training. Some of them are pulled from uh, Malcolm Gladwell talking to strangers. The idea is to give you a sample of whatever else is operating in the way you see. Part of the reason why you don't see as clearly as you think you see is because you have bias. You and I have a profound number of biases that God is interested in revealing in order that we can work with him to move them all into deeper holiness, deeper integration with the life of God, the nature of reality, deeper maturity. And these biases get very personal. What I mean by that is they're not only general, like a halo effect, groupthink, uh, confirmation bias, which every person can suffer from, but there's very unique personal expressions. I, I, one example for me is I've noticed that I have a come through bias. The story of my false self is finding love, finding worth in coming through for people. And so just this past weekend, a friend said to me, hey, Morgs, we, we ought to get together for a beer sometime soon. Let's do that. And I said, great. And what I felt inside was pressure, okay? And what I realized the pattern is when someone says to me, we should do this, because of my bias of come through, I immediately take personal responsibility for that. I immediately make it my task to calculate, now I'm responsible, I need to reach out to that person, figure out our calendars and make it work. And in this moment, I'm thinking, I'm traveling, I don't have any time for a month, it feels overwhelming to me and I don't know what to do about it. 
So in a moment, I disconnect relationally and go to kind of overwhelmed because of my come through bias. When someone who doesn't have a come through bias can say, yeah, that'd be great to get together. And they may be thinking, I'm just going to wait for that person to initiate. And when they have time and they want to initiate, I'm usually available and I'll make it work. And so they have a very different reaction to the same offer for connection. These things are shaping every part of our lives. So I began unpacking this idea of bias over this past year, giving it thought, consideration, chewing on it, researching, looking at the own fabric of my own life, becoming curious about how I see in ways that are not in alignment with the way God sees. And it was Easter. And I was praying through the resurrection and I sensed the Holy Spirit invite me to look at all four gospels because many of the stories of scripture were just told one account, but the life of Jesus, we have four unique accounts. As most of you know, right? Authored by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so Sunday morning, Easter Sunday, I sat down with my Bible and I read all four accounts of the resurrection. I read Matthew's account. I read John's account. I read Mark's account, Luke's account. When I came to these stories, what I'm thinking is, okay, this is a moment that you don't want bias, right? This is a moment to get it right. I mean, spoiler alert, Jesus defeats death, restores his sons and daughters, and all the authority given to Christ, the son of God, is given to the sons and daughters of God to rule and reign and restore God's intentions on earth. You want to get this story right. And so my thinking was God wanted four voices to emphasize the point. Well, friends, I read the stories and they are so different. I'm just amazed at how they're arranged different, how different authors have different emphasis. Some authors choose to include some parts and others choose not to include other parts. And I started digging in going, why would these, these men write such different stories of something that's so important? And as I reflected on it, I realized my thinking for many years was these were four of Jesus's best friends. They lived life with him. They saw everything he did. And when he died, they reported it. And friends, that's just not the true story. Two of the gospel authors were his first disciples, and two of them actually were disciples after Jesus's death and resurrection of the original disciples or of, of like the apostle Paul. Luke was a, a disciple of apostle Paul, for example, and never shared a life with Jesus. And the other thing I came to learn was that there were 30 or 40 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus, that these stories were told audibly and they weren't captured in the written form. And then it took 40 to 50 years after that to begin to organize these stories in a collection, which now we have come to know is the New Testament. You have Matthew, who's a tax collector. He did the dirty work. You imagine what it was like to collect the taxes person by person in those days. And it's interesting that his perspective 
is to reveal Jesus as kind of a greater Moses. And he lays out the story as the Bible Project explains to us in the same format as the story is laid out of the life of Moses in the Torah. It's five blocks of Jesus's teaching fit exactly in parallel to the Torah and the life of Moses. Then you have John, who's a fisherman. He was the earliest disciple. He was among Jesus's closest friends. He was near to Christ. And he tells the same story from the perspective that God is human. He became human in order to restore everyone and everything that was lost. Mark, I picture as this rough, tough, blue collar, kind of a goodwill hunting-esque character. He traveled with Barnabas and Paul. I can't imagine the stories he saw, the lashing, the shipwrecks. And he has a totally different angle on the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He sees it as a start to a new humanity and this redemptive crash into the present moment of human history. Then you have Luke. Luke isn't just any other disciple. He's a physician and he's a Gentile among the Jews. I don't know that we can appreciate the depth and breadth of what that meant, but he had a unique perspective. He presented Christ as the king with the heart of a servant and the servant with the heart of a king. Friends, four different perspectives, four different vantage points, writing the same story in very different emphasis, very different language, an extremely different bias. How about you? It's an exercise that will be at the end of this taking action, but I'd love for you to reflect after reading all four. If you were to present the story of Jesus's resurrection, just like these men, having had to capture it over time after the life of Jesus, you too have the stories of Jesus. You too have your personal walk with Jesus. You have your personal bias. What would you tell? What would you choose to keep? What would you choose to let go of? Friends, the reason why it's so important to see is that our bias is something that we need to give great consideration to. It has shaped all of the great heroes of our faith, and it is shaping every day of our life. Another story to reflect on that's just a fascinating kind of meditation on power and the implications of bias is the story of Saul and David. For the cliff notes, just midstream in the story of David and Saul, there's this beautiful statement for Samuel 16 that the spirit of God entered David like a rush of wind and it empowered him with vitality for the rest of his life. And so we know that David's empowered by the spirit of God. And then we find Saul who's actually very given over to fear and depression. A black mood has filled him. And so he looked for somebody that he could trust that could play the harp and help deal with his depression. And so David comes to the scene. He already knows of David. And David's been anointed. He trusts him. And as the depression got bad and tormented Saul, David got out his harp and he played. It says in verse 23, it would calm Saul and he would feel better. The scripture says that Saul liked David very deeply. And Saul made David his right-hand man. God was with David. He was courageous, good-looking, talented, so mighty that the power of God moved through him to kill Goliath. And the village of Israel celebrated. And so here you have Saul who loves David, who trusts David. David's basically put second in command. 
Then he kills Goliath. And then the people begin shouting, Saul kills by the thousands, David by the ten thousands. Okay, here's the entrance of the assault against Saul. He's attacked in his place of identity. And it says that that celebration of David, that the people saying David is greater than Saul, made Saul angry, very angry. See, David didn't change, but Saul's bias towards David had changed. 1 Samuel 18 says, from that moment on, Saul kept an eye on David. Friends, that's an understatement. As you know how the story goes, Saul was out with a vengeance to destroy David. In a moment, everything changed, not in circumstances, but in bias that Saul held towards David. And so I want to pause for a moment and ask the question, as we are unpacking bias, as we're talking about the sort of bias that we bring to situations, I want to ask you, what bias do you observe in someone else that's costing you? It's easier to look into someone else's life before we can look in our own. It's actually a really helpful exercise in humility and compassion. I had one friend share with me by way of compassion. He said his wife tends towards worry. She leans towards worry. She'll think about the 1% outcome that could be very bad. And she will put 99% of her energy towards the 1% that is unlikely to happen. And so that effect of that leaning can just really challenge their relational kind of dynamic in their marriage. Another friend confessed to me, he sees it in his boys. One of his sons has a leaning towards fear. And so he will hesitate when he's invited by dad into something new. His other son has a leaning towards adventure and risk. And so he will jump at the opportunity to try something new. And the father was saying that as a result of this bias and this leaning, he tends to favor one son over the other in the idea of approaching his sons to see if they wanna have an adventure together. And so other people's bias have a negative effect on us in many situations. I just want you to pause for a moment with me and call to mind someone who has been entrusted to your care, who has a certain bias that you could put words to that has a negative effect in your relationship. Let's pause for about 30 seconds on that. Friends, I'm peeling back the layers of an onion. I hope that what you're kind of appreciating is I'm trying to introduce a big question and a big idea that will take time to work its way in us. I appreciate Dallas said of Jesus that when he taught, we wouldn't have had to take notes, that he would plant seeds that would take root in us and they would work their way into the soil. And over time, the hope is they would root 
and produce a harvest. And so I'm simply trying to introduce a big idea, plant a seed for your consideration over time, because these are deep waters. There's a lot more we could say, but in this setting of a podcast, I simply want to just name, there are significant implications to our operating blindly according to our bias. There's the category of offering and receiving counsel. Over the years, I've received tremendously helpful and holy counsel from older, wiser men. I've also received really bad counsel from really good people. It's taken years to kind of unpack the difference between those categories. But over time, I've realized there has been some particular poignant counsel that had less to do about God, that had less to do about me, and more to do about a bias that they brought from their story that was actually unhelpful to my situation. There's a category of hearing from God. God intends us to practice hearing from him. John 8 says that those belong to God hear God's voice. It is essential to thrive in the kingdom of God to practice hearing his voice and having a conversational intimacy. Dallas Willard has a beautiful book on that. John's written a beautiful book on it. Having said that, we not only hear from God, we hear from other sources. We hear from the enemy. We hear from our brokenness. We hear through our own bias and it corrupts our intimacy with God over time. So these are real implications. And I think finally what I get to as apprenticing kings in God's kingdom is our bias is shaping how we lead and how we love, particularly as our kingdoms expand. As our kingdoms expand, multiple things happen. And one is we get more and more selective in our sort of content consumption, in our relational circles. We get a bend, a leaning towards here's where I stand because we have kind of permission to do that. But that's actually not a permission from God. That's not the posture of a student. That's not the posture of the plank and the speck. As kings in God's kingdoms, it takes great humility to be students of our bias in this path and process of masculine initiation. Masculine initiation always correlates with being curious, what is my bias and what do I do with that? As I said earlier in these ideas that our bias can be rooted in our false self and it can be rooted on our true self. So if I had to simplify kind of a first step once we become aware of some of the bias that's operating in our seeing, the first kind of action in the kingdom is to crucify. That is to put to death the things in us that aren't of God in his kingdom, the things that don't align with the nature of reality. And the second is to consecrate the bias that's in us, that's formed us, that can be in the service of love. And so an example for my story, that whole come through bias is not from God, but it forms and informs many of my decisions and relationships. And so that's something I have to crucify. Whereas this idea of I was saved and initiated through wilderness 
in, in, in kind of the outdoor life or the idea that I'm an American, like those sort of things need to be consecrated and brought under the care and connection of God because they can actually be used in the service of the false self or the true self. But what I wanna do is harness all of the bias that's unique to my story in order that I can be fully yielded to God and his kingdom. As Dallas Willard said, the goal is to become the kind of person who can actually cause delight in the heart of God in doing what I want to do not just in what God wants me to do, but actually become the kind of person that's so matured, that has so grown in union with God and in holiness, that what I want is what God wants. And I am free to walk in the unique expression of masculinity that God has set deep within my soul. Friends, the best leaders are the ones who are being led. And one of the greatest failures of most good men, as leaders, we reserve the right to maintain our bias rather than allowing our bias to come out in full light of God to be corrected, removed, consecrated over time. See, a good king is confident and curious. A good king knows that they don't know everything they need to know. They know that they don't have everything they need to have by way of formation to walk an independent life. It's been said that the greatest form of pride is self-sufficiency. A good king is fiercely committed to tending to the plank in their own eye. A good king believes that this is the path to seeing clearly. This is the path to right relationship. A good-hearted king, a mature king, believes that this is the path to help a brother, a wife, and a child tend compassionately, lovingly, and fiercely to the speck in their own eye. See, friends, the goal is a fully consecrated life where we see clearly. That is to say that we become the kind of person where we see as God sees, with nothing obstructing our vision, in order that we can rule and reign in love, in courage, in vulnerability. This is the consecrated life. So I want to go back to the water filter. You heard the story. Sherry has her bias. I have my bias. And I hit reset and just avoid the problem. And then a water filter came in the mail. I was pissed. I didn't order it. I was offended because I thought, okay, Sherry ordered this. She just found me out. And after months and months of not replacing the water filter, she said, I've got to take it in my own hands. And so I'm going to get a new filter. And so I went through my resentment and I finally landed in love and just love, blessing. She can do what she wants to do. I choose the narrow road. And that was just the beginning of what I didn't know was actually more about my confession and sanctification. It wasn't Sherry that ordered the water filter at all. It was God who sent it. Friends, I have no explanation. Allfilters.com, the filter comes in the mail. It has my name. It has my address. It has an order number. It's a new filter. She didn't order it. I didn't order it. 
But I said, God, you have my attention because the predominant worldview that I carry is God is arranging all things for my masculine initiation. And I want to become a student of my bias. And so backing up, I did the math. I did a little bit of thinking about the water quality. I did a little bit of research on a filter and where I landed in the first kind of piece I shared was the filters generally don't do much and our water is good in Colorado. But friends, that's not enough. That's from my own bias. And so in humility, I chose to take the time to start looking in. I realized that fundamentally, the core variable of this water filter on our fridge comes down to the water quality that's coming through the pipes. And I realized that Colorado water, quote unquote, was just too vague. It's general. The water that comes to our home comes through our county. And I had to look into the quality of water in our county. And so I did that. What I found out is there are harmful chemicals that can be present for all sorts of reasons in drinking water. And studies show that some of those chemicals are present in our water in Colorado Springs. Now, what's so difficult to read on this website is the amounts that they say are in the water. They don't communicate how dangerous they are and how consistent these levels are. And so though they inform about the water, it's inconclusive to how harmful they are. What I also found in the study is there are things that most water filters on refrigerators actually do filter out. And it isn't the Giardia bacteria like E. coli and salmonella. Those aren't the concerns, microorganisms on the level of house water in Colorado. But there are things like volatile organic chemicals, synthetic chemicals, chlorine and radon, things that would be of concern. The filter addresses those things. And the challenge is, I don't know if the water requires that. And friends, as a king in my kingdom, I came to the end of the time that I can give to a water filter, the time that I can give to making this decision. But what more importantly, what I had to get to was my bias. It wasn't about love. It was about bias. And it was confessing, I have bias that's causing dissonance with my wife. I've come to a point where it's inconclusive as to whether or not the filter is actually a benefit. But in love, in crucifying my bias, in consecrating my bias, I came to the conclusion that that water filter can do good things. And if there are harmful chemicals in this water that's coming into my home, then to steward my wife's heart and the health of the people entrusted in my care in general, unless I'm going to do more research, it is wise and loving to replace the water filter. And so I did that and I ordered an entire set of water filters and every six months from here forward, I will be replacing my filter. Friends, this is the work that God wants to do in our soul bit by bit, by day and by decade. So friends, this is a big category. It's a big idea. And where we land is this question ultimately, what is your bias? What have you come to see because of your leaning? It's not punitive. It's informative. Come to it with compassion, kindness, and deep curiosity. 
Many and much has been entrusted to your care. Your father has this under control. It's not foreign to him. He waits to be wanted. And he's woefully curious and excited to see your response. And so in all of it, the invitation is to pray. And I can just do a simple modeling prayer here of, Father, I confess that I have bias. I do not see as you see. I do not see clearly. Jesus implores me to give consideration, Father, to the plank in my eye, to take it very seriously over the speck in the eye of another. Jesus, your invitation is to tend to the plank in my eye with your help, with your leadership, with your timing, with your winsome care. I invite you into it. I crucify my bias that is not from you, God. I give you permission to disrupt me from my narrow thinking, my safeguarding in self-sufficiency and independency. I crucify my bias and I consecrate my bias. God, the parts of my bias that are rooted in my true self, that are intended by you, that are informed by you, I pray that they would be infused by you. I bring them under fresh care and connection to the life of God. I want to become the kind of king in whom you are glad to entrust the care of your kingdom. And so I give you permission, I give you access, and I pray that your grace, God, you acting, would illuminate the ways bias is shaping my everyday life. I want to hear from you. I want to have healthy relationships. I want to lead in love. I want to offer and receive counsel all free from the corruption of bias that's not under your rule and your reign. Come, Father, come, Jesus, and come, Holy Spirit, in your name. Amen. So, friends, in the first teaching I did with the Fellowship of the Like-Hearted Allies through this content, after I concluded, I offered some taking action. It's activities to allow this to work its way within our souls. And I wanted to share a few of those with you all. And so on the Become Good Soil podcast, you can find the listing of what's your bias. And I've offered a few of those activities for you to share in. If you're a Become Good Soil alumni, you'll want to go to the alumni page for more. But for you listeners, there's three activities I want to invite you into. The first is to watch the film Crash. It's a 2005 film. And it's a brilliant kind of parable on the ideas of the impact of relationships with this category of bias. And so we've put together a sort of chart of all the main characters. And we ask these questions to unpack what is their bias? How was it formed? What was its impact? How did it change over time? And then most importantly, what did you learn about yourself from your experience of this person? It's an awesome film to watch with a group of buddies, to watch with your spouse, to watch just with God as some personal exploration. Dive into that film and do some work. The second category I wanna offer you, as I mentioned earlier, is read all four gospel accounts. Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20 and 21. And I wanna invite you to observe the impact and bias of the story and how it shapes 
the story in which we find ourselves. What is lost and gained through each gospel writer's sort of unique telling that's not captured by others? I'd love for you to unpack that. And then how would you tell your own gospel story of the resurrection? What would you include? What would you not include? How would your bias have shaped your decisions in that? And then the third and final activity is to get to the core of an honest inventory of your own bias. And as I've said, this is exploratory. It takes compassion and it's a gateway to our excavation and our restoration. It's worth the time. There's a lot of things that form our bias. And so I listed some examples of categories that can help you begin to explore that. And you can find all that on the website, but things like social location, family of origin, how you consume information, and this kind of statement of, I tolerate this, but I value this. So for example, one friend was telling me in confession, I tolerate collaboration, but I value being right. There's all sorts of things that affect kind of shaping our bias. And I want to invite you to begin an inventory. And so there's multiple activities to unpack. I invite you to go back through this podcast. I invite you to go to the website, to the What's Your Bias, Become Good Soil podcast post, and share this with other people. Watch the movie crash, host a movie night, dive into this. It really helps to become a student of bias by learning through the lives of others. Friends, these are big ideas, big questions. And as always, we're going to reach the many, to find the few. And if you have traveled this far, you are among the few. And I'm honored and I'm sobered and I'm joy filled to share these miles with you. And so as it was with David, I pray that it would be with you, that the spirit would come like a rushing wind, that you would be filled with the spirit of God afresh, that vitality would fill your very body and being in this moment, that the spirit of God would never leave you, that you would say yes from some deep part, even a subconscious yes, that you say, God, Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit, you have my yes, more of me being given access to more of you. I choose to consent to masculine initiation. I want my whole heart back. I love you, God. I receive you. Friends, 45 seconds to breathe, to tune into the heart of God, to give him your bias, and to turn to hope. Thanks for sharing these miles with me. We'll be back together on another Become Good Soil podcast.